Welcome to the God of My Closet podcast, where we explore life and light of the love who embraces all of our skeletons. I'm your host, Ben DeLong, author of There's a God in My Closet. Thanks so much for joining us today. Everybody. I'm so glad you're listening today. Um, for this episode, I had the privilege and the joy of, of chatting with Alexander John Shia. Um, and we'll get into a little bit about him and his work. Um, but we're really going to focus on um, his book, Hearts and Minds, and him talking about this way of seeing the Gospels as this four gospel journey of each gospel really addressing a particular question that we all face. It is fascinating. It is um, really making the Gospels come alive for me. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad you get to listen to him and um, be sure to check out his website, what he's working on, and, and I'll include that in the show notes. Um, quick announcement, as I've been doing lately, um, my Kindle version of my book, There's a God in My Closet, Encountering the Love Who Embraces Our Skeletons, um, is still on sale for $2.99 on Amazon. Um, so if you like the Kindle version, uh, go snag that. If you prefer a physical copy, uh, that is still on sale for $9.99 on my website, bdelong.com. That's B-D-E-L-O-N-G.com. Well, without further ado, here is Alexander John Shia. Well, hello, everybody. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Um, today, I have the real treat of being joined by Alexander John Shia. Um, Alexander is he's a psychologist, a spiritual director, a speaker and a author of several books, um, including The Hidden Power of the Gospels, Returning from Camino, and Hearts and Minds, The Four Gospel Journey for Radical Tran- Transformation. Alexander, thanks so much for being with me today. Ben, it's a delight. Uh, I'm, I'm coming to you from Spain, so uh, I'm at the end of the day and you're at the beginning of the day. <laughs> I know that's so, that's, I, I, I know that's the reality, but it just feels weird. <laughs> It does. It does. Well, um, so I wanted to, to talk about, um, I've been really moved by um, the way that you framed the Gospels and this four-part journey, and, and we'll talk about that more. And um, I've been reading some of your stuff, and, and I've listened to several interviews um, with uh, Nora, Sophia, and then I, I know you, you are frequently on... Um, Rob Bell and I've heard you on there several times and have been really moved. Um, but I think the first time I listened to you on there was when you were talking about um, Advent and and how how Christians connected Christmas to um, some of the the Celtic traditions, and that was really powerful. Thank you, thank you. Uh, uh, Rob and I have really developed a, a lovely friendship over the years. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, I. I, I love listening to his podcast just because it's um, like I listen to a lot of podcasts for informative reasons, but I often go to his mm-hmm. just because there's just so much encouragement there. And there's he just kind of brings you back to that like deeper sense of life. And so it's he's um, he's someone that really helps me a lot. And I can actually say the same thing. And one of the things that uh, I mean, we could do the, the, the Rob Bell fan club here, but he's <laughs> truly a he's truly genuine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I anyway, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But he's really a true friend. Yeah, yeah. So, um, 
yeah, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd love for you to share a little bit about your story, kind of what makes you you. And um, I've I've heard it several times. I'd love you to share for you to share it here too. Well, so I I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, in uh, the very difficult days of the 1950s and the 1960s. And my grandparents came to the United States from Lebanon uh, at the turn of the old century. And uh, in those days, Birmingham, Alabama was a very difficult place for, for uh, immigrants, yeah. Lebanese immigrants. And uh, my grandparents come from, and my whole family comes from a long tra Catholic tradition in Lebanon. And probably you've heard me tell the story, but when I was born, I was given the name Alexander. And Alexander is a name in my family that goes back about 14 generations. Mm. And over those 14 generations, 11 of the 14 are priests. <laughs> and it was the name that was given to the son who was um, expected. I mean, it was really, it was not a suggestion. It was an obligation. Yeah. that you would fulfill the family line of being the priest. So I grew up with the, um, the expectation and the privilege in my family of education because I was going to mm. be the next priest for the family. Yeah. And then I, I, left, uh, I left Birmingham and went to the University of Notre Dame uh, back when uh, Notre Dame still knew how to play football. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, and I, really, I had the most incredible teachers at Notre Dame, including uh, a visiting professor by the name of Joseph Campbell. And mm. Campbell, who was teaching the theology department, uh, really spun my world. And in some ways, my world is still spinning from <laughs> what he was able to impart to me. Mm. So is that um, is that kind of where you started getting that? that sense of this uh, four-part journey? It is. Um, there are actually two things happened simultaneously, and that was Campbell teaching the theology department was talking about how all the world's great sacred stories have four parts to them. And he called this the monomyth or the one great story of all humanity. And he named those four parts uh, of quote unquote, the hero's journey. The first part is we hear the summons uh, to the journey. We hear the summons to grow. Mm. And the second part is uh, we face great trials and obstacles. And the third part is we receive a gift, a vision or a gift or a, a sense of ourself. And then the, the fourth part is that we have to return to everyday life and learn how to offer the gift, learn how to serve the gift. Mm. Well, at the very same time that I was studying this with Campbell, because uh, I also, my, my major at Notre Dame was not theology, my major was anthropology. And mm. I was discovering in anthropology that, um, that across the world, that great rites of initiation, and we can think of the word initiation just as a process of change and transformation. Mm -hmm. But all the great rites of initiation had four parts to them. And, uh, and those four parts lined up very much with what Campbell was describing. Mm -hmm. And then the third piece of this was all of this research had come out 
had just come out in the early 70s about how early Christians had developed a four-part journey towards baptism. Uh, mm. Baptism was not at the beginning of profession of faith, but was baptism was a ritual that expressed a deepened faith. Oh, okay. And so I started seeing all of this 444, and I began to wonder, did it have any connection to the Gospels? Hmm. Was there some way that our earliest ancestors in Christianity had known this four-part pattern and that it, that, that it governed or led them in the choice of which Gospel text? In the early 70s, I started hearing about this foreignness and wondering if there was a connection with the four Gospels. And, and I spent the next 30 years uh, trying to figure out how this might fit together. And um, oftentimes I found myself sort of trying to push my foot into the shoe when it didn't really fit. Yeah. But, fi but finally, in the late 1990s, this research came out by an Anglican priest at Oxford, and his name is the Reverend Robin Griffith Jones. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a book called The Four Witnesses. And this is a book about Christology. And, but, in, but in the book, he summarizes what we think was going on in the community at the point that the gospel text was revealed to them. Mm -hmm. And when I read his material, it was like the, this, this, I don't know how to describe it, you know, lights, fireworks, uh, the breath of spirit, whatever it was, but mm -hmm. 30, 30 years of research and prayer and trying to figure this out, something arrived. And what arrived is each one of these communities and we can talk about the four different communities, had a spiritual dilemma. And they, they were already baptized Christians. We, we already know that. We know that the, the Gospels were not written for first evangelization. Now, they can be used for that, but they weren't written for that reason yeah. primarily. They were written to baptize Christians who were saying, I'm already a follower of Jesus, and I've got this question, and I want to know how to be a better follower. Hmm. And so each one of the four texts that we call a gospel were written in response to a community spiritual dilemma. And yes, in fact, the four dilemmas are the four questions line up exactly with the journey that Campbell taught me and with what the anthropological world talks about as the process of transformation. And then later what I discovered is the process of transformation in psychology. And mm. finally, in all of my training as a spiritual director, I was also trained to listen for these four movements. So the, this, this understanding of the gospel came to me at the, at the end of really 30, 40 years of prayer research and trying to put this together. And ultimately, I didn't put it together. It came as a gift from beyond mm, mm. so let, let's talk about each one of the four texts and the community the the original community that it was written for and what they were wrestling with and how the text came as an answer yeah that'd be great so the the first text um and 
here's a here's a little piece just as we dive in, because if you open your Bibles, you're going to see the sequence of the text: Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, John, and then Acts. And I'm going to describe a different sequence, which is different from the sequences in the Bible. And if if we want to later, we can talk about how the sequence in the Bible was was there, but the internal sequence of the journey of transformation that we're all walking. The first question is Matthew, the second is Mark, the third is John, and the fourth is Luke Acts. Mm. So Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, we believe, is written to the community in Great Antioch in somewhere in the early 70s of the first century. And their experience in some ways is really very much like the worldwide experience we're having right now. Mm -hmm. Their world as they had known it had just crumbled. And what happened, and, and I'm going to talk about the Christian community in Antioch, but really at this point in the first century, this is a Jewish Christian community. We are, we are if you want to use the colloquial, we're Jews for Jesus. <laughs> uh, we really are primarily a Jewish community who understands that Jesus is the Messiah, the Messiah. What's happened is, is that in the summer of 70, the, the Roman emperor has decided to destroy the Jewish religion. Now, he's not against the Jewish people, but he's against the Jewish religion because Jews have a festival, a religious festival every springtime about how they overthrew the Pharaoh. Oh, yeah. And the Jews were the only people that we know of in the Roman Empire who never gave up in the face of the emperor's oppression. They kept pushing for independence and pushing for independence and pushing for independence. And, and the emperor finally decided he had enough. And the way to stop this, again, was not to kill the Jewish people, but it was to stop the Jewish faith. Mm. And he realized he was very smart in, in, a, in that wily way of, of evil. Uh, he knew that to stop the Jewish faith, he had to do two things. He had to tear down the temple because mm. Jews at that point in their history believed that God only spoke to the people at the temple. They didn't have a belief yet that we do today and that Jews do today, that God's voice is everywhere. Mm -hmm. At this moment in time, God only spoke in the Holy of Holies. And God only spoke to the priest in the Holy of Holies. So the emperor thought, ah, if, we, if I destroy the temple, and even worse, massacre every member of the Levite and the Cohens, which are the tribes that produce the priesthood in Judaism. Then Jews will no longer have access to their God and the faith will die. Mm. And so that's what he did. He sent his legion against the great city of Jerusalem. He annihilated the temple. And even worse, he massacred every member 
adult, a child, everyone in the line of the, of the uh, families of the Co Cohens and the Levites. Mm. So he effectively ended Judaism as a faith at that moment. Now, it regenerates um, very gradually in a very different way. But in those, in those days, right after the temple is gone and the priesthood is massacred, a great deal of Judaism thought it was the end moment. They thought this was the apocalypse. And mm, some yeah. were even saying that this was God's punishment and that God was so angry that God had ripped up the covenant with Abraham. The covenant no longer held. And that they should fear now that they and the world were going to be destroyed either by water or fire. Mm. So now we, we come to the community, the great community in Antioch. And when the temple and the massacre happens in Jerusalem, the Jewish people leave Jerusalem for 50 years. It's a ghost town up on the Holy Mountain. Wow. And, the, and the, so the center of Judaism moves to Great Antioch, which is in today Turkey, because hmm. it's the largest community of Jews in, in, the, in that world in those, in those days. And so in the community of Great Antioch, you've got Peter and Paul both preaching to the Jewish Christians. And, and in the midst of their preaching, in the midst of the prayer of the community, is revealed the Gospel of Matthew. And the Gospel of Matthew, we can now look at it and say, this Gospel is written to the question, how do we face change? Yeah. Especially, how do we face change at a moment where our whole world has just burned down? So that um, this text for the Jewish Christians was radical. Yeah. Radical in terms of our Jewish brothers and sisters, because what this text revealed to us is, sure, God, Yahweh, could lead us back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. But we now realize that there is a new temple, and it's inside of us. Mm. And secondly, we realize that there's a new priesthood, and it's in our midst. Mm. And this idea of the Jewish Christians, which we don't have to go back to Jerusalem, we're not obligated to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild that temple, and we're not obligated to go back to Jerusalem and restore the Jewish priesthood, that we are now asked to go forward in a very new way as a tradition of a God who is not just on one mountain, but is everywhere. Mm. And a God who, who doesn't just want a cultic priesthood, but a God who says, everyone has a direct experience of me. Yeah. This is, and what it does is it sets us apart from most of our Jewish family because they are in utter grief thinking it's the end time. And what we are coming to understand is this is not the end time. This is a new beginning time. Yeah. And the entire gospel line by line, chapter by chapter, 
gives us the practice of how we face such a moment of tremendous change. Mm. And it's it's one of the one of the things that just stunned me. It still stuns me is that when you look at the gospel through this lens, you can see the wisdom of it, the very practical wisdom of it, which organizes the text to teach us about what it feels like when we're in a change moment, what our thinking processes are like when we're in a change moment, and how through prayer and spiritual practice, we can reach for a spiritual reality which will hold us and keep us moving forward. Yeah, I've um, as I've been reading through that book, it just it just makes the gospels come alive in a whole new way. And Thank you. And, and it seems like I I just like going to college for ministry and doing you know exegesis papers and all that. It it it's funny because it it felt like at times it was so much work just to get to the question, how does this apply to us? (laughs) Like we had to go through 20 steps to get to that. And like, I don't know, I I feel like this four part journey is just putting it so plainly. Like this is what they were going through and what they were going through is universal. We all, we all go through it. So I, I like to tell the story about the genealogy in Matthew, because that used to be the part of the gospel that I would just skip over to get to the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Cause it just, it just seemed like a long list of men's names and I'm like, yeah. oh, I'm yawning and trying to figure out how to say this next name. And I was like, Oh, please don't make me read this in public worship. <laughs> um, but it's got this great story underneath it because it's telling that there are five times in the genealogy. It stops and it mentions a woman's name. Mm. And every time it does that, it's focusing on a very different genealogy than we than the one that we've been thinking about. Because every time there's a woman's name, we're talking about a, a moment in Jewish history that was very um, dangerous, but it was treacherous. Mm. And, and uh, so that the genealogy is reminding the Jewish Christians and reminding us every time you think your life has gone into darkness, that's not the end time, it's the Mm. beginning time. Yeah, wow. And it's like this great bell that sounds all the way through the gospel because the gospel has got all these allusions to autumn and darkness, which are not about cursing and not about not about being cursed and not about being thrown out of God's life, but rather reminding us in our Jewishness, why did Jews start the day right after sunset? They want to remember that darkness is God's womb time. Darkness mm. is the place from which our new life in God ushers forth. So therefore, yeah. when we come to a dark time, this is not the place where God is not, but it's actually, it's the place where we're most pregnant with God in our life. Mm. Oh, wow. Something new in us is about to happen. And that's the power of the genealogy, because throughout the genealogy, every time this 
unexpected story gets told, um, like Tamar and like Ruth and like David, etc. All of these stories are about times that individuals could have thought that they were enduring God's curse. Mm. But we know that that darkness was the place of new life. Yeah, that's oh, that's so powerful. And that's like, I know the, the past probably three or four years where I've really, um, God's really helped me to work through a lot of things within me. It's, um, and that's kind of why, like, the book that I wrote, I, that's why I called it There's a God in My Closet, because it was like, God had to take me to the place that I did, I really didn't want to go um, to bring about something like just so beautiful. Yeah. And I mean, this is, uh, this is just so much a part of our deep story that uh, we've come out of a period the last couple of hundred years where we've thought that God's life always meant certitude. Yeah. But now we're now we're rediscovering that no, there's a very fruitful place in our life with God, which is about unlearning, mm-hmm. so we can relearn. Yeah. So what about the second question? Because I, I know that um, that involves a lot of a lot of darkness there too. So what what does it look like to move through that? So um, after we we move through the Gospel of Matthew, which is so much, and I love to remember that both at the beginning of the Gospel, uh, we're given Jesus's name as the Emmanuel is with us. Mm -hmm. And the very last, almost the very last line of the Gospel is Jesus standing on the Mount of Resurrection saying, and remember, I am with you, because mm. it's what we need to know as we move to the second place on the journey. Oh wow! That because we're gonna because the second place is a is a, a wild and woolly place. Yeah. Um, the 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 second question is, how do we move through times of great trial and suffering? And and so we have the Gospel of Mark, which is the question in the experience. Mm. Uh, Mark, we believe, is coming out of the Christian, Jewish Christian community in the city of Rome in about the year 64, 65. Again, who's in Rome? Peter and Paul. And you're going to hear this, and I, I won't go into this greatly, but one of the things to know is that all four of these texts are coming out of a community that had one of the original eyewitnesses plus Paul. Mm. And it's and it's the and it's the interchange between the original eyewitness and Paul's eyewitness that births the gospel. Anyway, mm. uh, what happens in Rome in July of '64 is that you know we know the story about Rome burns for a week. Yeah, and the emperor is Nero, and you know the the old phrase about Nero fiddles while Rome burns. Yeah. Um, the Roman Senate is now really upset with Nero and they're blaming him for the fire. And in fact, there's some evidence that he actually may have said it himself. Mm. But nevertheless, Nero has got to have a scapegoat. 
Yeah. So the scapegoat is going to be the same scapegoat that the Roman emperor has always used, which is the Jewish community, except somebody, we don't know who, somebody convinces Nero that it wasn't the entirety of the Jewish community that had set the fire, but that there was this small rebel rousing group amongst the Jews who believed in this figure called the Christus, the Christ. And that this Christ figure had said that he was greater than the emperor and that he had come to overthrow the Roman Empire. Well, that's all Nero needed to hear. <laughs> yeah. And so he bought, brought the full weight of his army now down on the Jewish ghetto in Rome. Now, the Jewish ghetto was across the Tiber River in these days. And it's a very funny thing about fires. Fires don't jump rivers. Yeah. And sure enough, no part of the Jewish community had burned. Hmm. So when, when you need a scapegoat, um, it doesn't matter that, uh, that you don't have to have good reasoning. <laughs> uh, Nero blames this on the Jews and sends his soldiers into the community and they're knocking on doors. Door by door by door, the head of the household has to come and answer the door. And the soldier is going to say, are you a believer in the Christus, the Christ? Mm. If that person says yes, the rest of the household, along with that person, are going to be immediately arrested and taken to the Circus Maximus for execution. Mm. We have to remember that the Colosseum is not yet built. The Colosseum doesn't come until uh, uh, late first century. Oh, okay. Um, if the person says no, the horror doesn't stop because now the person at the door has to give the name of a family who is going to be killed rather than his or her family being killed. Oh, wow. So... Every time there's a knock on the door, is it going to be your family that's going to die or are you going to name someone else? And wow. you, can, you can feel the anxiety in the community. This is a community that knows each other. Yeah. So if you are going to name some other family, who's it going to be? And are you going to name the shopkeeper two blocks over that you had an argument with last week, et cetera? Um, the isolation and the fear, and I would even say the rightful paranoia is rife. And in the midst of this, somehow the Gospel of Mark is composed. And we know that Mark was originally an oral story, and you can hear people telling this oral story, this oral prayer, as they're in their houses waiting for the knock on the door to come. Oh, wow. And we now have a, we can now appreciate how this gospel opens. This gospel opens with the story of John the Baptist in a wilderness. And of course it's going to open this way because this gospel is going to say to the Jewish Christians in Rome, you are John the Baptist now. You're in another wilderness. You're likely going to die 
because of the whim of an emperor in the way that John the Baptist was executed on the whim of a drunken god. However, there is a greater truth to proclaim your life to and that you are being asked to live for something greater than yourself. And so we now can look at this gospel of Mark, which is truly the presence of Jesus the Christ guiding us. If, if we would talk about walking to the valley of the shadow of death, this gospel says, yes, you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but you're walking by the aroma of resurrection. And what people don't understand is that none of these gospels, in my belief, were composed to have a story about resurrection at the end. That they do have those stories and those stories are true, but the gospel, the whole of each one of these gospels is about the life of resurrection. And especially Mark, Mark is the power that allows you to go to the door and say, yes, I am a believer in the Christus. But I, lo I love what you were saying though, just about how it's it's the resurrection life. And that, that's something ha that um, has been really having a profound effect on me as I've been growing spiritually. Cause I know, you know, when I was younger and growing up, the resurrection was, well, you, you believe this happened you know, because the Bible says so, and then because of it, someday you'll go to heaven, but that, that was about it. Um, there wasn't, like, how how it impacts your life now, and there definitely wasn't this sense of you walk through the darkness um, in order to get to the resurrection, um, and you, you die to something in yourself in order to experience new life. Yeah, I, I, love, I love how you put that there. Well, and I love it, you know, there, there are books and books and books and books written about the way that the, that the Gospel of Mark originally ended, where yeah. we have the text about the women came to the tomb and a young man is there. They don't even get the story of an angel. And that the angel says to them, you know, Jesus has gone ahead of you to Galilee and you will go there and find him. And it, and it says, you know, go and tell the disciples. But the last line of the gospel is, and the women fled from the tomb for fear and amazement had overcome them. And they said nothing to anyone. Mm. Well, there are a couple of clues to the deeper meaning of this passage. And one is that the ending of this gospel acts as an examination of conscience for you as you're waiting for the knock on the door. What are you going to do when the knock comes? Are you going to profess the resurrection or are you going to not profess the resurrection? And, and what's so powerful is this gospel doesn't give them the story to follow because it says, if you know in your life the power of the resurrection, not because somebody told you a story about it, then you know what your answer must be at the door. But the second thing about this text is, is in the Gospel of Mark, the Sea of Galilee 
is a place of death. It's a cemetery. And, and the water of the Sea of Galilee, the Jewish people were phobic of. They didn't want to go anywhere near it because yeah. the storms on that sea came up so quickly and so many Jews drowned in that sea. And, and, the, and, the, and the, the young man in the tomb is saying to the women, don't flee from the storm. Don't flee from the place of death. Go to it with a deeper power. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I, I can see how that moves because you were talking about how the end of Matthew really helps you, gives you what you need to go to the second question and how that end of Mark will help you go to the third question. It does. And here's the, in a linear way of thinking, it would seem like the end of Mark is not continuous with the beginning of John, but it is. Mm. As a spiritual director, as a reader of the spiritual classics, we know that when we sit in that place with God of seeming nothingness, emptiness, some sort of a emotional or cognitive death-like place, yeah. that that something arrives by grace mm. and and you can't predict when it's going to arrive you don't know if it's going to be 30 seconds from now or five months or longer yeah but you know that if you just will stay faithful to the spiritual practices it will arrive and inevitably it arrives by surprise mm. And that's what happens as we move to John. We end Mark in this place of turmoil and death, yet believing in another reality and believing that that greater reality will come for us. Mm -hmm. We turn the page and we open John and we have this paean of praise to the God who has always been. And this text of John is coming, we believe, out of the community of Ephesus, which is on the Aegean Sea in Turkey. Mm. And Ephesus, in this community, we believe that the gospel is being written to in the late first century. And the community of Ephesus has become the face of Christianity in the first century. Uh, the Christian community in Jerusalem is killed off. The uh, Christ, Christian community uh, in Rome is killed off. The Christian community in Antioch uh, never flourishes greatly because it is the center of the new Judaism. So Ephesus, which received the preaching of Paul in the 40s, and it receives the preaching about all people are one. And mm. it becomes, Ephesus begins to do something that may be the first time it's happened in human history, or it may simply be that Ephesus is the only place that we have a historical record of. Mm. But now we have the beginnings of a pan tribal community. We have the beginnings of a community 
which it no longer matters whether you are male or female. It no longer matters whether you are Greek, Cypriot, Jewish, uh, from Gaul. Mm -hmm. Uh, Literally, this community, it no longer matters who your mother is. It no longer matters your bloodline. And this is the hallmark of early Christianity is, is that we are the tradition of diversity. We are the first tradition in human history on record is having said to you, if you are wealthy, come. If you are poor, come. Mm. If you are from the Eastern provinces, come. If you're a free person, come. If you're a slave, come. Our door is open. We have a table where we will sit as brother and sister with you. Mm. This is... Uh, This is a new step in the development of the human family. And this incredible beatific vision of oneness because of the presence of Jesus the Christ 40 years later has dimmed. Mm. And in, in the face of this beatific vision of oneness, all the old stuff has resurfaced. All the old hierarchies and jealousies and in-group and out-group. You read the letters about this community. It's filled with strife and animosity and Mm. bickering. And so John's text is this incredible text about this new song that's singing in your heart and what you must do to keep the song moving forward with ever more strength and rhythm. Mm. Because we know that in, in, I mean, as a psychologist, I know that this moment of the elixir and the the bells and the whistles and and the sensation of beatific oneness, all of that, it's wonderful but it's immediately followed in us by a time of great chaos. Mm. And the reason is because this this song of oneness has come to deconstruct our world as we have known it, because Mm. there's something larger for us to move forward with. But unless you know the spiritual practices, what happens is, the chaos overturns the gift Mm. and you lose it. So the text of John, which is, I think, one of the most, if not simply put, the most powerful spiritual text ever composed, Mm. is the text about this song of oneness. And the opening of the gospel gives us the experience of this beatific vision of how all people are one. And then we go through 10 chapters where this gospel gives us in great story and narrative, the obstacles to oneness that all of us will experience over and over and over again in our life. Mm -hmm. And Jesus the Christ is teaching us in this gospel about 
the thinking styles and the emotional styles and the spiritual challenges when we try to go forward to a larger vision of God. Mm. And that it's always going to be there. We're never going to be without it. The question is, will we work with it or will we let the chaos take it away from us? Mm. Yeah, I can, as I've listened to you talk about the these four questions, I could see like looking back on my journey, how, um, how, like you said, I, I would get stuck in this experience of oneness. And then like, I didn't realize there was something after that. And so then mm. that, that chaos, as you call it, would kept, you know, kept taking it away. It was like, it took it away. And then I fought to get it back again. And then I took it away. And it was like this cycle until like, um, something that really helped me move to the next step was when I encountered the Enneagram and it, it helped me see um, like my own pitfalls and, and kind of move to that next step of one thing that Enneagram showed me because I'm, I'm a type four. And one of the things mm. that it showed me was like, you, you have a terrible time following through on stuff. And, mm. and it's like, yeah, that's true. And, and I was, I was in the middle of writing uh, my first book and that like i don't it lit a fire under me of like i i can't just sit in this you know all the time like i, I have to move forward somehow i have i have to offer what what i've experienced and um i have to it's hard to even think of the right words to say it like i i i have to learn to live from this new perspective and and that requires that requires going out I like to, uh, to, to focus just on one piece of the Gospel of John. And, and John has written to the question of joy and the meaning of joy and how we take joy forward. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a high moment in John, which really is the high moment of the entire four gospel journey. But we've missed it. Mm -hmm. uh, and the moment is John on the gospel um, is is Jesus the Christ on the cross in the Gospel of John. And when you understand that John's passion is written to the question of joy, and then you realize all the strain and strife and doubt has been taken away from the telling of this passion. That Jesus the Christ is quite in control and quite at ease with this moment, great sense of equanimity. In that in this passion that Jesus on the cross says, I am thirsty, and he is asking for the bitter wine, just as the text has told us over and over again, mm -hmm. when the disciples have said, you don't need to do this. This is my hour. I've come. Give me the cup. Yeah. There, there's no prayer in John about the cup be passed. Mm -hmm. Jesus is resolute about give me the cup. And so on the cross in John, Jesus asks for and is given the sour wine and he drinks. Mm -hmm. And this is precisely the deepest or the highest moment of Christian spirituality because Jesus is asking us, certainly there is that prayer in us about deliver us from the world's discomfort, deliver us from the from the the pain and the wounds. But there's also that other prayer of a Christian 
which is by the power of something greater than myself, I have come to drink of the world's bitterness mm. and through the Christ to transmute it. Mm. And this is what and this is what happens in this glorious passion of John, which is not sorrowing at all. Nobody's taken my life from me, John says. I mean, Jesus says in John over and over, no, I am offering my life. Nobody's taking it from me. I have yeah. made the decision. And then comes the stunning line that all of our scholars have missed because they haven't understood this passion. And I, I have to give my own tradition, the Roman Catholic tradition, a little bit of appreciation here. We have hard days. We've done <laughs> so much poorly. But in this, but in this one instance, we've maintained the deeper truth. The Catholic translations of this passion at this moment say, and Jesus bows his head and delivers over the spirit. This is Pentecost oh, wow. from the cross. Oh my goodness. This is in, in John, this moment is death, resurrection, and Pentecost. <laughs> wow. And, and I don't mean that in terms of a video cam of what we would have seen if we had been standing there 2,000 years ago. But as the internal spiritual experience of how grace works with us, that when we too, by a power greater than ourselves, that we too can drink of the world's bitterness because we know that we have come to do this and to, and to breathe back justice in the face of oppression, to bring back to breathe back beauty, to breathe back equanimity, mm. that we too participate with the spirit and we too bring a new Pentecost to the world. Mm. That's crazy. <laughs> that, yeah, I've, I've never heard that in my life. <laughs> well, there's no other translation of the text at this moment other than the Roman Catholic translation, yeah. which maintains that the word is the spirit, not his spirit. Yeah. But the, the great scholar of the Gospel of John Raymond Brown has, has written greatly in the, about the argument and the scholarship about why the text should read the spirit. Mm. I, I feel like there's... Um, I, and at least in evangelical tradition, which is my tradition, um, that there's, there's a difficulty with, um, talking about like, like being in that moment on the cross. Yeah. Um, I, I even remember, um, uh, in the, the church that my dad pastored, somebody, but I think it was candlesticks up and it had the crucifix on it and people were so offended. Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. And it's, there's just that uncomfortableness, um, which then makes us miss the point that like this, this all comes back to um, a God who freely gives his life. And that's how, that's how he shows love. Yeah. Very, yeah. Uh, should we do the fourth, the fourth text? Yeah, let's go to it because I, yeah, it, it's like all the other ones where it's leading us to it anyway. <laughs> yeah. So the fourth text 
which we call Lukax. And I really put the two back together in the way they were originally intended. Um, is coming again out of Great Antioch, uh, we believe in the 80s first century. And, uh, but it's not written just to the community of Great Antioch, it's written uh, as a book to travel around to all the emerging Christian communities because they're all facing the same moment together. Yeah. What is that moment? Uh, what's happened in the 80s is the break with Judaism has now begun to happen. It really, mm -hmm. we cannot talk about Christianity and Judaism separate from each other before the 80s of the first century. Mm -hmm. And sadly, what happens is um, the, the, the priests have been massacred in 70. Judaism is bereft and leaderless. And there's a, a group of middle managers who have risen to authority because there's nobody else left. Yeah. And that group of middle managers uh, are a name that we're quite familiar with. And they have a very bad hair day and it gets locked into the scriptures. Mm. And their name are the Pharisees. And over and over and over again, we need to remember that the Pharisees held Judaism together through this period, and they birthed the rabbinical movement, which holds Judaism to today. Yeah. And the Pharisees for Judaism are the golden heroes. Mm. But, and, and the Pharisees would not have had a historical argument with Jesus. In this period after the destruction of the temple, the Pharisees have this very short period where they are overwhelmed with anxiety because they are afraid that their religious tradition, 2,000 years old, is about to be destroyed. Yeah. And out of their anxiety, they put forth an argument. Now, they have no uh, authority to legislate because they're not a priest. So they only have the they only have persuasion and argument. Yeah. And their argument is because of this place that we're in, without the temple, without the priesthood, we've got to pull together. And in this pulling together, we've got to think alike. And in this thinking alike, we can't have this idea amongst us that the Messiah has come. Mm. So they are arguing that if people believe that the Messiah Sia has come that, that, that their Jewish blood is taken away from them. Mm. Well, that's the first wound because what happens now is, is that synagogue by synagogue, if they agree with this Pharisee's argument, they are removing the Christians from the assembly. Except that this is not some kindly just go down the street and build your church. Yeah. This is the old Middle Eastern curse of we ritually kill you. We no longer mm. see you. We will have a funeral ritual for you. We will sit Shiva. If we see someone that looks like you walking down the street, it's a ghost. You're mm. dead to us. Wow. So this this incredibly 
horrible wound between our two great traditions comes from this period. But there's a second wound for us as Christians, and that is as we um, are removed from Judaism, the Roman emperor now looks out and goes, oh no, we've got a new religious group going on in the empire. And the emperor didn't like new religious groups because they're zealous, they're enthusiastic, they're passionate, mm. and they aren't easily controlled. Yeah. And so he says, well, let's get rid of this group. Let's exterminate them. Let's execute them. Now, why does he want us executed? Not just simply because we're passionate, but there's something that we're doing which are, is deeply disturbing to him. And it's that we are raising the status of women. Mm. We are saying to slaves, you have souls, we're humans. We, we're not abolition, we're not advocating the abolition of slavery yet, but we're saying to slaves, you're worthy of human dignity. Mm. We're saying to people, no matter where you're born in the empire, you're brother and sister to each other. And we're saying to the wealthy, if you have wealth, you have an obligation to share it with those who have less than. Mm. All of those values are values that directly oppose the value system of the emperor. Yeah. And the emperor knows that if those values take root in his empire, his authority will be weakened and likely eventually overthrown. So it's not because of the presence of the name of Jesus. It's because of the presence of that name that is opening up, up us a new way to live with each other. And it's mm. a new way that we are choosing to live with each other. That's a challenge to the emperor. Mm. So the text of Luke is written to the text of service. And to the people of those days, it is, look, we are people of a new and wider loving revel revelation. Yeah. How are we to live in the face of oppression? How are we to live in the face of not being accepted? How are we to live when by choosing to live this way, we're not going to have the good schools for our kids. We're not going to have the medical care for our ill. Uh, we're not going to get the good neighborhoods uh, mm. to live in, etc. And the text of Luke Acts gives us first the witness of Jesus and secondly the witness of Peter and Paul who say we are going to speak truth to power. Mm. That's the easy part. The second part of this is the part that's so difficult. And I think of it especially in these days, Ben. We are going to speak truth to power in love. Mm. We're going to speak truth to power, and we're going to oppose. In those days, we are going to oppose the emperor and the, and the emperor's oppressive value system but we're not going to demonize the emperor. We are going to recognize the human dignity of every individual, even those 
that we opposed because of their thinking or their feeling states. Mm -hmm. And the gospel says in this way, we're going to seek to change the empire, but we're going to seek to do it in the slow, steady, patient work of changing a heart, mm -hmm. changing a heart, changing a heart, changing wow. a heart, changing a heart. And this gospel was the anthem of Christianity for 200 years. For 200 years, we were an outcast and illegal religion because of our God. Yeah. And we kept, and, and we never took up arms, and, and we never fell into the, the lesser truth that you change people by legislation. We need good legislation. Don't hear me wrong on this. Yeah. But you need legislation to help a culture until the value system is so deeply rooted that you actually don't need the legislation. Hmm. But don't ever believe that you change a culture by changing the laws. You change a culture by the slow, patient work of the aroma of resurrection. Mm. One heart, one heart, one heart, one heart, one heart. Yeah, that's so, I mean, I'm thinking about, um, it, it's just crazy how much this applies to what we're going through right now. And like yeah. you talked about, because um, that was going to be actually one of my questions to you was what, what phase like do you think America is in right now? And then when, when you said the first phase, I was like, oh yeah, obviously. <laughs> um, but then just what you're talking about now, how, I mean, you're, you're obviously seeing that, you know, civil rights happened and that was good and that was necessary and laws were made that were good laws, but you're, you're clearly seeing that there's tons of people who weren't actually changed. Yes. Yeah. And a, a law does not affect transformation. Yeah. Um, please, please do not hear. I advocate good laws. Yeah. But, but I don't ever believe that a good law transforms a heart. When you, you talk about for that, for the first question, um, of how do we, how do we face change? You talk about that there's that great temptation of going backwards and, oh, and I, I meant to ask you, are you good on time or, um, for a couple I'm more fine. questions? Okay. Um, I'm, in, I'm in Spain. I'm in lockdown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so that the great temptation of that first question is to try to go backwards and, Boy, do you see that right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love the, the way that God, the way the Gospel of Matthew ends is so amazingly wise. Mm. Um, the disciples are told to go to the mountain in Galilee to which Jesus has directed them. Now, put yourself back 2,000 years ago. Put yourself back in the Jewish mindset of if a significant spiritual event has happened, especially if it's a mountain peak, the mountain is named. Mm. The mountain above Jerusalem where the temple sits, 
the mountain of Sinai where the commandments were given, etc., etc. This gospel does not name the Mount of the Resurrection. Hmm. To a people who have just lost their priesthood and Jerusalem and the temple, they're not given a place, a named place, because you know what's going to happen. Yeah. We're going to race there, and we're going to build a new <laughs> temple there. Yep. And the whole impact of this gospel is you have got to go forward, not yeah. backward. Yeah. And it's so hard because when, and I, five, six years ago, I was sitting in the doctor's office. I had just gotten a cancer diagnosis. Mm. And uh, I mean, I'm sitting there and I'm like, you know, okay, tell me what I've got to do. Tell me what the treatment is. Tell me what's, tell me about surgery. Tell me how long I'm going to be out of commission. You know, mm -hmm. give, me, give me the plan about how I can get my life back. <laughs> and I realized that spiritually in that moment, God was giving me the only thing that matters. And it's the same thing that God is saying to the disciples at this moment at the end of Matthew. I've got a journey for you. Mm. And I'm not going to tell you where you're going to go. And I'm not going to tell you how to get there. I'm not going to tell you what the resources are. I'm not going to give you the blueprints for the new building. I'm not going to give you the building committee. I'm not going to give you any of that outer stuff that you want. I'm going to give you the only thing that's important. I am here. Mm. And together, we'll figure this out step by step. That's mm. not what I wanted to hear five <laughs> years ago in that doctor's office. Yeah. I understand. I used to work with, with communities right after a church had burned down. And of course, they want to get the old building plans out. <laughs> you know, start raising the money. Let's go. Let's yeah. build what we had. Yeah. That's never where God is. My, my recommendation to a community that's just physically lost its physical church is live in this new place for one or two years and you will discover a new form of being together. Mm. And your new church building will reflect where you are now and where you're moving yeah so um you know as we come out of this lockdown time i'm reminding myself as i really everything i've been saying today is really about my own life but yeah. i'm reminding myself that as we return quote unquote to life it can't be the same life that i knew a hundred yeah. years ago yeah that life's gone. Yeah. Mm. Now, I I thought about this. I don't know what you would say, because I, I I think that our society as a whole is is definitely in that first question of how do we move through change. Um, but I I wonder if maybe the you know the the communities that are really suffering right now, especially the the black community. If they're more on that second question of of how do we handle suffering, does that does that seem 
um, reasonable? Um, it, it, you know, um, I, I think if we can stand way back, like on the moon, looking back at Earth, we, we might be able to see in the macro where we are with the questions. But I think in the midst of our, of our everyday life, we probably are at least three of the questions all mixed up together. <laughs> yeah. Um, some of us are realizing that the moment is about a significant change. Some of us are wrestling with trying to go back to yesterday. Some of us are in the despair of the wilderness of the second path and mm -hmm. wondering if there's a way ahead and if we can put this back together somehow. And then yeah. there are others, our, our prophets and, and, our spirit, and our hopeful spiritual teachers that are on the fourth path saying to us, there is a way ahead mm. and God is with us and we have work to do. Yeah. Sometimes it's like, especially right now, we're going through such turbulent times. Um, you know, the black community is, is hurting so much and I'll see a lot of people who don't, don't know. I mean, they have no way of knowing what it is like to go through their journey. And, and they're just saying, well, you need to forgive and you need to, you know, they're just they're just telling them what to do and it's like yeah i mean i that's true but i i just feel like you don't get to tell them <laughs> there we're all we're not all in the same place yeah but but none of us needs to say to anyone else let me tell you what you should do mm. and especially right now our brothers and sisters of darker skin need us to walk with them yeah. and hold them and they need to feel our heart. Yeah. I often will share words of Martin Luther King Jr. which he said, um, and I remember as a boy in Alabama, I, I didn't talk about the fact that uh, the KKK burned down my grandmother's house in 1958 in Alabama. Yeah. And then they proceeded to burn down a few other members of my family's homes because we were Lebanese and because we were Catholic. Yeah. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. said these words to his community, and I took them to heart for my own. He said, send your hooded perpetrators into our neighborhoods at the midnight hour. Burn our homes. Beat our children and break our bones and we will not hate you. Mm -hmm. We cannot in good conscience obey your unjust laws and we will win our freedom. We mm -hmm. will. But we will so appeal to your heart and to your conscience by our ability to suffer. Mm -hmm. That when we win our freedom, the victory will be twofold, for we will have won yours as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Our black brothers and sisters are offering us a tremendous gift in their pain. Yeah. They're asking for our they're asking for our growth. Mm -hmm. One other thing I, I wanted to ask you is um, so we talked about the, the first question and how the temptation is to go back. 
you talked some about this for the other questions, but um, like what what would you say are the the temptations for the other questions? Like what what is the temptation when you're in that second question of how to move through suffering? Well, in in suffering, the the um, the the not helpful answer is to reach for an answer. Mm -hmm. um, we we want to get out of the suffering, and so we just start reaching for anybody or any book or anything that will tell us about how to get away from this pain. Yeah. Rather than realizing that the spiritual practices are about inviting the presence of the resurrection to come and sit with us in this pain. Mm. And that, um, that eventually what will happen is, is that, that the Christ will lead us to a larger answer than we never could have figured out ourselves. Yeah. That the answer is neither, the answer is almost never an either or, it's a both and. Yeah. That both end comes to us by surprise. Mm -hmm. the, the challenge of the third path is to believe that the answer that I found for myself is the answer that you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the, the, third, the third path comes with such power and beauty. Um, it, it truly gives an answer for my life. But the answer that comes to me is largely a personal answer, not yeah. an answer for everybody else. Mm. And, and the challenge on the fourth path of service, um, the, the gospel text is so beautiful in that it keeps using the word now and today. Mm. Because when you're on the road of service, there's no destination. <laughs> there's no there's no golden temple at the end of the road. Yeah. There's never going to be a day where every need is taken care of. Mm. You're always going to be on the way. And if you're always going to be on the way, if you start looking down the road and trying to predict where the destination is and how long it's going to take you to get there, you're going to get discouraged, dispirited. Mm cynical um you've got to stay with what can i do today what resources has god given me today to do what i need to do mm. and don't forget to laugh don't <laughs> forget to have a nice meal don't mm. forget to to be with friends and family mm. um, the way to do the long work is to keep joy in every day mm. as you're on the journey. Mm. I love, I, I tell this story about my favorite Pope. and Maybe every young Catholic kid growing up has the, the Pope of his childhood is, is his favorite, but <laughs> mine's John the 23rd, who was Pope for 1958 to 1963. And uh, John wrote in his journal, he said uh, he would leave the papal office at 8 o'clock every night. And he just had to walk down the hallway to the dining room. But, uh, and if you know John the 23rd, he was quite rotund. Apparently, he really loved his pasta. <laughs> um, 
But he would leave the office every night at just about eight o'clock. He would turn the lights out. He would close the door and he would say, God, it's your church. I'm going to dinner. <laughs> and you, you want to build yourself for the long road. That's a good aphorism to keep in mind. Mm. Yeah, as I talked about earlier, like this, this whole, this whole concept and then the Enneagram as well has helped me to see like, you know, you go through that journey of change and, and moving through the suffering and then you see something deeper. And for me, a large part of that something deeper is just seeing that I'm good and that because I, I grew up just seeing myself as just, just bad and, and, um, um, and a lot of that comes from a lot of that comes from my childhood experiences. A lot of that comes from evangelical theology of just telling you like your, your core thing is that it's all about original sin. It's all about your depraved. Yeah. And, um, and so when, when experiencing that I'm good and then I can serve out of that goodness, I can, you know, I'm, I'm working on a book now. Uh, it's a novel of just talking about what it looks like to, mm. to heal with our inner child. And, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm realizing that there's things, you know, I, I don't have to be good at everything. There's things that I am gifted in and I can put those in the book and, and, and there's something that I have to offer. And, and, uh, I, I love too, I, you just talked about being present and, and not looking forward. And there's one day where I really experienced this service, um, mentality was um, my, my wife had had surgery and she, and so she had to sit, you know, on the couch for six weeks recovering. And, and that, mm. and that's not easy for anybody, but for her, especially because she hates just having to be at home all the time. Mm. And, um, and so she wanted, she wanted to go down to the Bay area and of course she couldn't drive herself. And so, and I, I can't, I do not like driving, but she loves driving, but she can drive it. And so normally we would have taken that trip and I would have just been like, all right, you know, all right, let's get this over with. Cause yeah, I don't want to drive, but I, I just had this different mentality of like, oh, like t- today, today, this is how I get to serve my wife. This, this is how I get to be a blessing to her. And it could just completely change like the way I approached the day and the way I approached like the, the driving. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. It wasn't something I had to endure. Yeah, beautiful. It reminds me about how the text of Matthew and Luke are so similar, but Mm. yet Luke will change. And I don't know whether Luke changed or Jesus said things differently at different times, and that's how the evangelists are bringing it forward. But, you know, Matthew's Lord's prayer is pray for your daily bread. And Luke says, pray for your bread daily. Mm. And, and it's just that small change, which is all the way through Luke, reminding us it's only this moment. Yeah, yeah. Don't miss this moment. <laughs> this, four, this four-partness that the early Christians knew, they did it everywhere. Mm. It wasn't just the Gospels. Mm. So uh, I know we, we probably need to end, but... If if I only saw it in the Gospels, I would wonder. Yeah. But all the great structures of early Christianity were built with this four-part rhythm.
Well, Alexander, this has been a huge blessing and I um, felt it listening to you and especially now talking to you, talking to you, you just have such a beautiful and genuine heart. And I just thank you so much for, for sharing yourself today. And it's an honor and a pleasure. And thank you for asking. You're very so, welcome. Uh, take, take care and to all your listeners, um, there's a journey ahead. Just know that we don't walk it alone.